All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back up here uh, with the opportunity to preach to you today. Uh, we did text with uh, Tyler a little bit this morning. He is in the Negev region of Israel, N-E-G-E-V. Uh, I know some people think that, uh, you know, you go to Israel and it's all like camels and tents all the time, uh, but it's actually quite technological. You can text. Um, so we get some pictures every now and then from him, and he said he is praying for us and uh, looking forward to being back with us, and I'm sure looking forward to being back with Heather and the kids, but uh, just continue to pray for him. I, I'm so excited for all the things that he is learning over there right now, and I, I, I can't wait to, to talk to him when he gets back. Um, I'll be headed over uh, next week. I'll be with, Lord willing, we'll be here this Sunday, uh, next Sunday, and then ha- Harry and I head out next week uh, in the afternoon. We're going with Jeremy and the Equinox guys, so I get to be with you to preach today, and then uh, we'll hear from Tony and Glenn and then Tyler, and I'm sure he'll have a lot to say, uh, for the rest of July. And then just, you know, to sort of um, to let you know where we're headed in terms of sermons, I, I believe that we are going to start the book of James uh, in, in kind of the middle of August there. Uh, may, I may have one other thing to share with you before that, but we'll begin the book of James, and I think that will be a good contrast for us uh, with the book of John. Uh, I think it'll be a, a nice place for us to spend the fall and, and perhaps just the beginning of uh, next year, which, can you believe it? It's hard to think. You know, the church, church weeks are weird. Like, it's so crazy. We just finished Easter. We're in the Sunday, uh, the, the summer, and, you know, Matt and I are like, talking about what we're going to do at Christmas. So in, in church years, I'm rambling. I haven't been up here in a while. Uh, you know, I, I, I tend to think, it, you know, it, it, things go in weeks in the church. And, you know, a lot of the guys I know that are up here every week, you know, there are, there are 365 days, but there are 52 weeks. And it's amazing how fast 52 weeks uh, can go by when, when you're thinking in weeks and not, not days. So I'm happy to be back up here this morning with you. My topic, I have, a, I have a great title for today. I only share with you my titles when I think that they're worth sharing, and this one is worth sharing. I'm calling this Dependence Day for obvious reasons. Uh, so my topic this morning is trusting God, and uh, I want to begin with an Old Testament story. I'm just going to kind of walk you through it. It's one of my favorites. Uh, in my readings of the Psalms this week, I came to chapter 71. Let me share with you, don't turn there, let me just share with you verses 15 through 17, says, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts and your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord I will come, I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. And what I noticed as I was reading that this week, and I've seen this in other places of the Psalms, the psalmist promises that he will proclaim the mighty deeds of the Lord. Uh, Down in verse 18, he says, in my old age, I will proclaim God's power to the next generation. And I believe that when we read these Old Testament accounts, which in some senses have sort of fallen out of uh, vogue, these days. Um, You know, people don't focus much on the Old Testament because they think it's really, really hard to understand. Uh, But when we read and teach these Old Testament accounts, we are proclaiming God's wonderful deeds. Parents, please read these accounts and explain them to your children. First of all, they're really good stories 
Uh, they're very interesting, lots of interesting things, but secondly and more importantly, they teach about the greatness of God. And these stories need to be a, a part of our common heritage. I want my children to think in terms of these stories, growing up knowing about Moses and Samuel and David and Elijah and Elisha and all the other faithful men and women of the Old Testament. And so this story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib, Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. He's kind of marauding all over uh, the, the world at the time. This story actually occurs three times in the Old Testament. It's recorded for us three times. It's recorded in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and then Isaiah uh, 37, 38, 39 also contains the story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib. I can't think of another Old Testament story that appears three times, and it's like I always say. I mean, you may, you may feel like this is a pretty big book, and it is, but in a sense, there's only so many pages that God has given us to communicate his, his revelation, and the fact that he takes three different places in this book to tell this story, it must mean that it's kind of important, you know? And so let's give it a little intention this morning. Um, I, I, I just want to kind of walk through it here, tell the story quickly. I, either 2 Kings 19 or, or Isaiah 37, go read it this evening with your family and, and kind of walk through it again, read it again. But I'll, I'll tell the story kind of quickly this morning because I'm, I'm headed somewhere else afterwards. So Hezekiah is one of the good kings in the southern kingdom, which is Judah. So after Solomon, the kingdom splits in two. You've got uh, Rehoboam becomes king in the south. Jeroboam becomes king in the north. That's the, it's easy to remember. It's, it's the Boam boys. They sort of take over the two kingdoms. So the southern kingdom is Judah. The northern kingdom is Israel. There are no good kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, sadly. But there are some good kings in the southern kingdom, and Hezekiah is one of them. And so during Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, um, he conquers the northern kingdom of Israel. So God judges them. You actually can read about that judgment. I think it's first, Second Kings 18, right before the story. We read about the judgment of God in allowing Sennacherib to come into the northern kingdom of Israel and take them away to exile. And that's what he's promised that he would do if they refuse to listen to him. And these are perilous times, all right? Hezekiah, uh, I, I, at the beginning of our passage today, it says it was the 14th year of his reign. And so really for 14 years, he has dealt with the threat of Sennacherib. And Sennacherib has already taken the northern kingdom, and he's continuing to make his way south. And eventually he's going to end up at the gates of Jerusalem. And this was a ruthless king. So, interestingly, uh, Sennacherib's conquest of Israel and then his attempted conquest in Judah is one of the most, like, archaeologically documented stories in the whole Bible. Um, so, you can go uh, to London. You can go to the British Museum in London, and there is a room there that contains the Lachish reliefs. And the Lachish reliefs are a series of wall carvings that were in the throne room of Sennacherib, and they were found in Nineveh. And they're called the Lachish reliefs because they uh, 
recount Sennacherib's destruction of the city of Lachish. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because Lachish is a little tiny city on a hill that is just south of Jerusalem. And I'll explain in a few minutes why that matters. Um, But if you go, you can Google the Lachish reliefs later, um, and you can see that they contain these terrible, terrible things that the Assyrians did to the people of Lachish. And and you can see all kinds of tortures and things that are going on. And, and, And basically, Sennacherib is saying, look what I did to Lachish, and you don't want to mess with me. Now, what's interesting about that is if you were going to come back and record your exploits, would you not record what you did in the capital city of Jerusalem? Why why would you only record, this is what I did in Lachish? Well, the answer to that, of course, is he never got to Jerusalem, and that's the story that we're looking at today. Okay, so Sennacherib has finished uh, destroying Lachish, and he sends his representative, a guy, it's the Rabshakeh, all right? It's his, probably more of a title, um, so, the, you know, it probably wasn't a guy named Rabshakeh, it was probably like, you know, the Secretary of State, you know, that's, that's who this guy is, and so he comes, and he stands outside the gates of Jerusalem, and he proclaims, he proclaims in the, in the, in the language of the people of Jerusalem, and that's significant, because Hezekiah's guys come, and they say, could you just talk in the royal language and not talk in the language of the people because we don't want to scare everybody. And Rabshakeh's like, I'm going to talk because everybody needs to hear this because here's the thing. You've got two options. You can either bow down and submit to Sennacherib or we are going to come into this city and we are going to do to you what we have done to Lachish and Samaria and uh, northern Israel and all the other places. We're going to do it to you. And, and, and the people would have just been shaking in their boots. You can go and read it tonight. I'm not going to read it. Uh, it's scary what, what he says is, is going to happen. So the question becomes, what is Hezekiah going to do? And here's the problem with the kings of God's people in the Old Testament. They don't trust God. And we see this over and over again, okay? So the first thing they often do, maybe surprising to you, is they run to another nation. And the nation that they often ran to was Egypt. They would run down to Egypt and they would talk to Pharaoh. See, in the first part of the Old Testament, Egypt's like the really bad guy. By the time we get to this part in the Old Testament, Israel and Judah and Egypt, they're kind of working together some. They're kind of on the same team because, you know, when you've got Sennacherib marching in, like everybody becomes friends when that guy's coming, all right? So the temptation would be to go down to Pharaoh in Egypt and say, we'll make an alliance with you and you help us against Sennacherib. The other temptation, which is worse, is to turn to the false gods, turn to the Baals, B-A-A-L. Yes, and that's what Hezekiah's dad did. His name was Ahaz, a guy by the name of King Ahaz, and King Ahaz is notorious because he set up altars outside of Jerusalem and he sacrificed his children to these false gods, okay? So that's where we are. What is Hezekiah going to do? Is he going to trust God or is he going to try to make an alliance with Egypt or worse, start bowing down to false gods? What would you do? And don't be too quick to say, oh, Yahweh, I would bow down to Yahweh. 
Because let's be honest, while we say we trust God, we are often very quick to turn to other things. When uh, a bill comes due, do you say, Father, I don't have the money for this. Will you provide? Or do you swipe a credit card and say, I'll pay for that later? Do you, do you pray about it? Do you ask the Lord? What about sickness or injury? And by all means, do what you need to do to get better, but do you pray? Do you at least acknowledge God? You know, God says to Moses in Exodus, when Moses says, I can't speak, I can't lead the Bible, I mean, the, the people, because I can't speak, and God says to Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So, so do, do we stop and say, Lord, why have you brought this affliction to me? And the world is a mess right now. Our country is a mess. Maybe your family is a mess. Maybe you are a mess. Where do you turn for help? Which seems more real to you as a legitimate form of help for us right now? The return of our King Jesus Christ or the 2024 elections? Which one are you counting on more to really change how things are going? And these are some broad examples. We can talk of all kinds of little examples in our lives, but there's a big difference in saying that we trust God and actually trusting God. So what does Hezekiah do? Actually, turn to um, 2 Kings 19. I'll give you a second. You might not have had your quiet time out of 2 Kings in a while. The pages might be a little bit uh, stuck together. I'll help you. 2 Kings is right after 1 Kings. Look at 2 Kings chapter 19. All right, here we go. As soon as Hezekiah heard it, this is verse 1, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went to the house of the Lord. Bingo. That is the right thing to do. Hezekiah does the right thing. And by the way, the sackcloth and ashes was a very public acknowledgement. So the king puts on sackcloth and ashes, and then he goes to the house of the Lord, which was a public place. All right? So everybody sees that King Hezekiah has humbled himself and is going to seek help from the Lord. He is setting an example. Dads, when difficulty comes in your household, how do you demonstrate to your family that you are going to trust in the Lord? And it may not involve sackcloth and ashes, but what do you do to bring your family in to say, we have this need. We are going to pray about it. We are going to seek the Lord. We are excited to see how God is going to answer. And that made it all better when Hezekiah did that, right? <coughs> Wrong. Verses 3 and 4. Thus uh, they said to him, so this is, uh, they, they send a, 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 some advisors. Hezekiah sends his advisors, advisors to Isaiah uh, this is the day of distress and rebuke and uh, disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength uh, to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So this is, they're, they're asking Isaiah to pray for them. And they're, they're making the, the central issue here, which I, I think is, is really beautiful. They're saying, maybe Yahweh will notice that this wicked pagan king is mocking him and will want to rebuke. So the, the central issue is not even necessarily the safety of Jerusalem and the, the people, but it's like, Yahweh, do you not see that this wicked king is, is mocking you? And Isaiah has a, a word from Yahweh, do not be afraid, 
because of the words that you have heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me, behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his land, and I will make him fall by the sword. Okay, thank you, Lord. Thank you for that promise. What happens next? Well, the Rabshakeh comes back with another message, and we see that in uh, verse 8. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, and he heard that the king had left for Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Cush. Behold, he has set out to fight against you. And so he sends messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard that the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations of my fathers, uh, that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, uh, Rezef, and the people of Eden who were at Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Ivah? So, so do, you, do you see how clear this is, all right? So the, the Rabshakeh actually, okay, so, so Hezekiah has humbled himself, sackcloth and ashes, help us, the Lord has said, I will help you, and now the Rabshakeh comes back and says, do you really think that you are going to trust in your God, and let me show you all the things that have happened to all the other nations who have thought that they could defeat Sennacherib? Are you really going to trust in your God. And you probably haven't had anybody. Maybe you have. I haven't. Somebody get that in your face and say, don't trust Jesus. This other God, he, he will defeat your God. We, we, don't, we don't talk like this, but that doesn't change what's at stake. Again, when the unexpected bill comes due, what's your first impulse? Where do you turn? And our, our world is, is blind to the reality of, of the spiritual world and false gods and the true God and all of those things, but the choice is the same. We have to choose to either trust the true God in the person of Jesus Christ or some other small G-God. And, and I, it's interesting to me, too, because Hezekiah has already turned to Yahweh once, and now the Rabshakeh comes back with a different message. And so this is where I think you might be tempted to think, okay, that didn't work. I turned to God. He said he would help. But now the Rabshakeh is back threatening. And it might go something like this, okay? The bill comes due, so we pray. Well, nothing happened. I got to find another solution. We wait a few days. Still nothing. We freak out, and we turn to some other provision. Matt and I had the, the opportunity to sit down with uh, John and Janie Chittister. You know, we support them, and they work with John and Gladys Mahigo in Rwanda. They were here last year about this time. And John and Janie, they said something that I've, I've thought about since we left. They, they talked about how much that God has done through John and Gladys in Rwanda. And the thing that they said that really stuck out to me is how they, John and Gladys just, how did they put it? I wrote, they, they won't leave God alone. They just keep asking, you know, like, how have they accomplished these two, you know, simple people living in the hills outside of, of Kigali? How have they accomplished so many things? Well, because they just, they won't leave God alone. They just keep asking. They keep after him. 
And at this point, Hezekiah has, has two options, right? Once again, like he can turn to the, the other sources of help or he can cling to God and say, no, really, Yahweh, we really need your help. And that's what he does. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it and he went up to the house of the Lord. And I love this. He spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they are not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they are destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from the hands, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. What a, what a statement, man. What would it be like to have a king who prayed like that? And so down, beginning in verse 20, the the prophet Isaiah has a long response to Hezekiah's request. The first one is spoken to Sennacherib. I'll I'll jump down to verse 28. Because, this is is Isaiah, this is the message for Sennacherib. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and you will turn back the way that you came. Those are strong words. Man, when you start mocking God, (laughs) it does not turn out well. I'm going to put a a, a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth, and you're going to turn back the way you came. And the second part is for Hezekiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, this is uh, verse 32, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a, a siege against it by the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and the sake of my servant David. And then down in verse 35, we see the outcome. Uh, Let me go there. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. And then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharezer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat and Irshadon, his son, reigned in his place. You ever heard that old song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho? Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. God fought the battle of Jericho, and God also fought the battle against Sennacherib. And Hezekiah humbled himself, and God destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Like I said, this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Old Testament, and I bring it up as an introduction to this topic. Don't worry, I've got one verse. I bring it up as an introduction to this topic of trusting God this morning because I don't see any reason to believe that we, God would act any different today against his enemies on behalf of his people than he did in the Old Testament. And so I'm coming to this well-known passage this morning. The kids sang a song about it uh, last week at Bible camp. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will keep your paths straight. That's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And I want to exhort you this morning briefly from that passage to trust the Lord and to really trust the Lord like like Hezekiah did, like really trust the Lord. 
that we would be a people who bring our crises and our emergencies out, and we spread them before the Lord, just like Hezekiah did, and we say, help, help us, that we would be a people who give the Lord no rest until he answers, and that we would humble ourselves, even our devastatingly hard difficulty, that we would bring them before the Lord. And I'm convinced that we need to return to the Bible's very basic instruction to trust the Lord. So, let's just look at this passage real quick this morning. And I'll I'll confess, contextually, I struggle sometimes when I come to the book of Proverbs. Maybe you do too, because let's just be honest, sometimes some of the Proverbs seem a little unrealistic. I don't know if you've ever thought that. Most of the statements are about prosperity. If you walk in the ways of the Lord, you will be blessed. And if you don't, don't, you will be cursed. And it doesn't take long to kind of look around the world that we actually live in and see that that feels a little tidy. Parents who raise their children in the wisdom of the Lord have children that walk away. People who walk in the ways of the Lord don't always live a long life, and some of those who reject the Lord live very prosperously for a long time. Plenty of the wicked are well-fed and happy while the righteous seem to struggle. And so I would just encourage you, don't read the book of Proverbs quite so narrowly. In one sense, they are a general um, statement of wisdom. Those who trust the Lord will over time be blessed, and those who do not will suffer. But there are no guarantees in the book of Proverbs. And so we must see Proverbs from a very broad perspective. We must see Proverbs from God's perspective. So Asaph in Psalm 73 tells of a time when he looked around and he looked at the wicked and he said, why are they prospering? And it was really hard for him. Why do they seem to like have no pain in their death and their bodies are sleek and fat and I'm over here wasting away? He says, they they are not in trouble as others are and they're not stricken like the rest of of mankind. And he very famously says, that's how I thought. I was like a wild beast before you until I came back to the house of God. And from God's perspective, brothers and sisters, these things are true because God's perspective is an eternal perspective. So think of it like this. The man who lives righteously but dies young will enjoy the blessings of that righteous life forever. That is true. And the man who lives wickedly and dies at 95 years old, enters into an eternity of sorrow, and will spend that eternity knowing that he wasted those 95 years. Those who seem to remain poor in this life, but have lived generously and hospitably, will enjoy the riches of those treasures in heaven forever. Whereas those who have lived selfishly and comfortable will find that they are impoverished. In eternity, Because you see, God's wisdom is eternal, and the scope of His commands is forever. He created everyone, and everything belongs to Him. He knows how it works. Therefore, the wise man trusts in His words. All right, so consider Hezekiah's initial prayers from a very narrow perspective. They were ineffective, all right? And this would have gone on for a long time. So those first prayers, Lord, help us. When he, when he repented and or came before the Lord in, in um, sackcloth and ashes. And then the Rabshakeh came back with even worse threats. And so from a narrow perspective, you could say, well, that didn't work. God didn't do anything. Clearly, trusting God doesn't work. But Hezekiah persisted. And we know the end of the story. So our faithfulness, our prayers, our struggles, our sacrifices, they may very well seem to have no discernible effects for a long period of time, 
but we must persist and trust the Lord, knowing that the morning will eventually dawn. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will keep your paths straight. And so we find three, three commands here, quickly. Number one, trust in the Lord with all your heart. So to trust in the Lord is one of the most basic components of faith. If you don't trust in the Lord in some way, you don't have faith. Jesus says, if, if you have faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. You can say to a tree, get up and go into the water and it'll go. It doesn't, it doesn't take much faith to do, for God to, to do amazing things, but you have to have some faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, the writer of Hebrews says. So what do you think when I say, what do you lean on? So later on in the passage, the next, the next uh, statement, he says, do not lean on your own understanding. And, and, and so we have this very clear picture of leaning, and I think I've talked to you guys about this before, but in the, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, in the bringing of the, the lamb for the sacrifice. And so you would bring this lamb, and you would come to the temple, which was a glorified butcher shop, and you would present the lamb, and, and the, the worshiper would actually place his hands on the lamb and lean on the lamb. And the priest would take a very careful uh, cut and, and cut the, the animal's neck, and the blood would go out. And as the life of the lamb went out of, of it, you would, you would fall forward as the lamb crumbled because you were placing your weight, you were placing your, you were leaning on that lamb, and you were trusting that somehow that dying animal demonstrates your trust that God is going to provide a substitute for you. And then, of course, we know that we now lean on Christ himself. We lean on him. People lean on a lot of things. And in the Old Testament, they called them idols. But we think of ourselves today as more sophisticated, and we don't think of them as idols. But still, our bank accounts, our social media responses, degrees, friends, purchases, our own understanding, as we'll see in just a second. And, and, and Solomon is telling his sons, don't lean on those other things. Don't lean on, on all those other things or even your own understanding. Lean on him, and he adds, with all your heart. Don't keep some back in reserve. All right, I'm just going to be honest with you. This is like the really hard part for me. I, I mean, like, I, I feel confident sometimes that I can, like, venture into that idea of trusting the Lord. But how much is it like, but, but I've still got some savings, but I can still go and talk to that guy and see if he can help me. I've got options. I'll take this step of trusting in the Lord, but if it doesn't work out like I think it's going to work out, I can sort of hedge my bets. The scripture, by the way, calls that a divided heart. So Psalm 86, the psalmist says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever. God wants us to trust him with our whole heart heart. That is an undivided, we used to sing a song, I don't know if you, you guys, give me an undivided heart was a song we used to sing. James 1, we'll get there in a few months. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So ask the Lord, but ask in faith, and don't ask doubting, because that's a double-minded man. So with all your heart, God doesn't want us to hedge. Command number two, don't lean on your own understanding. And this is a command that is often misused. Some people want to say, well, if you're going to follow Jesus, 
you need to turn off your mind. Because this verse says, don't lean on your own understanding. So they would say, you know, don't get mixed up with all that thinking and trying to understand. Just trust your feelings. You're like, True faith is just switching off your brain and just sort of take that leap of faith. You can't understand, but just, just trust. And that's the exact opposite of what Solomon is saying. He absolutely wants us to use our minds. He wants us to understand God's ways and lean on God's ways rather than our ways. And remember, Solomon is the same guy who says twice, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Don't just do what seems right to you. Seek God's wisdom and act accordingly. Brothers and sisters, I would just encourage you, don't lean on your own understanding. And, and, and let me tell you this, and I think I'm getting ahead of myself, and I'll probably repeat myself later, which I know I often do, but if your understanding seems to always fall in line with, like, what the world would do, or what your friends would do, or people on social media would do, you might want to wonder if your understanding is in line with God's revelation. You might want to just ask, because remember, there's a way that seems right to you, and it leads to death. And the Bible also says in Jeremiah chapter 17 that our hearts are desperately wicked, and my heart is going to try to convince me that my way is God's way, which is a lie. So be on guard. There is a good chance that every single one of us in this room regularly relies on our own understanding, and we need to be on guard against that. My encouragement to you is simply start filling your minds with God's Word. Read it, meditate on it, speak it, pray it, put it into action. Finally, command number three, in all your ways acknowledge Him. Last night I introduced my kids. I've been reading this book. It's called You Are Not My Own. Uh, No, you are not your own. (laughs) You're not my own either. Uh, You belong to God. Um, The name of the book is You Are Not Your Own. And and I've kind of said, we're going to say that over and over again in our household. You are not your own. You don't belong to you. When we started first grade at uh, Veritas, where our kids go to school, we had to remember, we had to memorize, remember Psalm 24. Some of you guys may have done this too. It begins with verse 1, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and all, and those who dwell therein. Y'all remember that one? Listen to it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. It's all God's. It all belongs to him. Anything I have is a gift. Everything I have is a stewardship that God has given to me. But the second part really drives the point home. All who dwell therein. Wait, that's me. That's you. All is all. We all belong to him. Not only does everything belong to him, but I belong to him. I am his. And if we could just get that through our little pea brains, we are not our own. We are created for him and by him, and everything we have is his, and everything that he brings to us is from him. So the only thing that makes sense when you think about it is to acknowledge him in all our ways. Paul says it like this in Acts 17, in him we live and we move and we have our being. To not acknowledge him in all of our ways is actually a total denial of reality. And to say I'm just going to do my own thing is absolute foolishness. What does it mean to acknowledge him? I think it, it simply means that we consider God's word as the starting place for everything that we do. It, remember, it, 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 it means that we remember to be thankful. Brothers and sisters, 
It is not unrealistic that we would aspire to live constantly acknowledging him in all our ways. Every single situation in all of our days presents us with a binary choice to acknowledge God or not, which leads then to the promise, and he will make your paths straight. Making paths straight, it's a Hebrew way of saying that life will be smoothed out. So, you know, the, the John the Baptist is going to be the one, he's, he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And it, it's, it's like the idea of somebody going before a king and preparing the road for him and like taking care of the potholes and putting up fences and making sure that nobody's going to fall off the edge or that his chariot is going to bounce when he goes down the road. Okay, once again, from our perspective, life feels really full of trouble, right? That promise seems kind of empty. My life doesn't seem smooth. I'm sure yours doesn't either. Seems like it's filled with peril. But again, we have to look at God's perspective, because this is a sermon about trusting God from a passage about trusting God. So what I do is I try to think of it from the perspective of somebody who has finished the race, all right? Someone who has died and gone to be with Christ. And if I were to go to that that faithful saint today and be able to talk to him as he is, you know, with Christ and say, uh, you know, is it true that if I trust in the Lord with all my heart, lean not on my own understanding, and in all my ways acknowledge him, that he will make my path straight, I think that saint in heaven would say, yes, it is true. He would say, those promises are true, because Christ brought me home safely, and there were all these potential traps along the way, and now I can look back on it from this other perspective, and I can see all the ways that I was in danger, and he took care of me, and he kept me from shipwrecking my faith, and he brought me through it. We sing Amazing Grace, right? Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe so far, and grace will lead us home. So you see, there, there are many dangers, but Jesus says, don't worry about the one that can hurt your body. Worry about the one who's after your soul. And so I think when, the, when Solomon says, he'll make your path straight, I think what he's saying is, like, forget the body for a second. He's going to keep your soul safe. Your path is going to be straight. All right. So I don't intend this sermon on this holiday weekend to be the final word on trusting God, and I'm sure you have huge questions. And yes, I just skipped lightly over some massive issues regarding God's sovereignty and human responsibility. These are gigantic meals, and we'll just eat them one bite at a time. But here are a few thoughts to conclude. Number one, what does it look like to actually trust the Lord? Well, first and foremost, it means trusting in Christ for salvation, leaning on Him. We're going to sing, leaning on the everlasting arms. Will and I didn't even talk. The Lord is good. We're going to sing that to close the service. And so you are, in a sense, trusting him that because he died and rose again, your sins are forgiven. And that is the starting place for trusting God. If you have never trusted in Jesus, then everything that I'm saying probably sounds like complete gobbledygook because it doesn't make sense. But once you trust Jesus, trust that his death and resurrection has paid the price for your sins, then the Bible says that the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you and you can begin to understand this perspective that is God's perspective. And second, as we've already said, trusting God involves finding out what God has revealed and living accordingly. And it it means turning from our habit. I hate to tell you, but all of us, me, I'll just speak of me, and then you guys can decide if it's true of you. I have a habit of leaning on my own understanding. And I think trusting God involves changing that habit. So about that, trusting God is a habit. I do believe that faith is a muscle. I believe it, and I think it has to be exercised, and I think there's a lot of Christians today who have weak faith just like they have weak 
muscles. Not all of you. I'm not making any commentary on the fitness of our church. I'm saying people are generally weak in faith. And, and for some of us, it's hard to trust in God because we just have so many resources to take care of everything that might come our way. Like, it's hard to think of trusting in God when you could just pay for help. We still live in a time of plenty. Probably none of us in this room are worried about where our next meal is going to come from. I'm not worried about a foreign army laying siege to our city. That's why we're going to see in James where James says, you rich people, you need to humble yourselves because it's harder for you to have faith in God because you think you have everything you need already, which means we may want to consider how can I put myself in positions where I have to trust in God? Exercise your faith in the little things. Obey him, trust him. Children, obey your parents and trust the Lord that he will make your paths straight. That is how you can guard your soul. Decide to bring all the little requests to God. When you are confronted, even with small things, bring them and spread them out before God. You know, I, I challenge, when, when the next bill comes, follow Hezekiah's example and just spread it out before the Lord. I don't know how I'm going to pay this. Help me. Lead me. You, you know, Corey Ten Boom, you know, he, my father has the, the cattle on a thousand hills. All he has to do is sell some cattle and he can pay that bill. He can take care of that. And if you find yourself always doing what seems right to you, I would be concerned because a lot of people really do think that God always agrees with them. And it's, it's not true. If your understanding always seems to line up, if your understanding of God's will always seems to line up with your own wisdom, you may have a problem. One big practical help, and I, I do this, I used to do this in the summer, I don't think I'm doing it this summer. Read biographies. Read Christian biographies. Read the Old Testament, read the New Testament, read biographies. There's some wonderful biographies out there of Christian saints who have gone before us and how they have seen God work. You guys know I love George Mueller. A.T. Pearson's The Life of George Mueller is like my, my all-time fave. Also, uh, George Mueller's um, own autobiography is very, very interesting. Uh, Eric Metaxas has a great biography of Derek, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Through Gates of Splendor uh, by Elizabeth Elliot about the, the missionaries down in Ecuador. I've mentioned God's Smuggler before by Brother Andrew. Uh, missionary biographies. There's good biographies about William Carey and Adoniram Judson and these men who just, at a time when nobody was being a missionary, they like went and were missionaries. And they're not perfect. There's a lot of flaws. They're people just like you and I, but they bear witness to the fact that God can be trusted. And the point isn't, by the way, and this is, needs to be clear, it's not that they were strong in their faith, although they were. The point is that God comes through. And I, I truly expect in heaven, you know, the Ephesians talks about, Ephesians 2 talks about trophies of grace, that we are going to be trophies of God's grace. And I, I fully expect that in heaven, part of the, the grace of God and the glory proclaiming his works is, you know, I, I, I believe we're going to sit around and we're going to tell all these wonderful stories, you know. We're going to find out all the times that our guardian angel, like, kept us from certain eternal death. And we're going to be amazed by it. And then we're going to want to tell other people about it, you know, because God preserved us and he's amazing and he took care of us and he took care of us in ways that we didn't even know in our lives, but he was just always doing it. And then he takes care of us sometimes in ways that we do get to see. And I hope that you guys see that. I hope you have opportunity in your life to see God work because you brought something and you laid it out before him and you trusted him and he responded. And I would say, coming all the way, full circle, full circle sermon, Dependence Day, uh, I talked about proclaiming the greatness of God. Uh, every time we take the Lord's Supper, 
There's a, there's a part in that passage that we read every week. It's probably the passage that we read the most in this church, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we are going to turn to the Lord's Supper, and we are going to corporately, together, proclaim the Lord's death. And in doing so, we are proclaiming one of his most wonderful, wonderful works. And if you are a believer here this morning, I would invite you to join in that proclamation as we take this, this bread and this cup, that, this table that Jesus prepared for us and has asked us to take together. And as we do that, uh, if you're an unbeliever here today, if, if all of these things that I'm saying don't make any sense to you, refrain from taking this because this doesn't make you a Christian, but I would love to talk to you, uh, and, and the other elders would love to talk to you too, other people sitting around you, to explain how you can take this meal as an expression of proclaiming your faith in Christ and the wonderful things that he has done going forward. So uh, the guys are going to hand out the bread and the cup. Uh, grab it, hang on to it. I'll come up and I'll read that passage, and then we will take it together in just a few minutes.